Welcome back this evening. We're glad that you're here and glad that you have chosen to make uh, the Sunday night service a part of your routine. And certainly if you're a guest, we're especially glad that you're here with us. If you had 15 minutes to spend with Jesus, more precisely, if Jesus came to your home, came in on your turf, and, and he was there to share with you and to bless him, and, and you could ask him anything at all, knowing that within that, within that allotted time, uh, he'd, he'd pour out truth upon truth, wisdom upon wisdom. I wonder what it would be that you might ask him. I've thought about some interactions that people have with Jesus as we see them pictured in the Scriptures, people who had different reasons for wanting to see Jesus, different things they wanted to hear from Jesus. And as we come across those interactions, and certainly within the book of Luke, from time to time I ask myself that question. What would I ask Jesus if he was in my house? Tonight, that moment belongs actually to a lawyer. He is going to ask Jesus the big question. And we want to look at that tonight because I think it has some pretty big implications for us. If you're following along, you know we're going through the book of Luke. Tonight we're going to be in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And if you're a guest and you're not quite for sure where Luke is, turn to page 1115 in the Brown Pew Bible. Feel free to take that home with you tonight. Luke, the physician, in his orderly account, writes about this story in this way. He says, verse 25, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if, if I think about of all the questions I might ask or all the questions that you might ask, all the questions that could be asked, that's a pretty good one. That's a pretty good one. That makes a lot of sense. Verse 26, he, Jesus, said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? I love that he asked that to a lawyer. You know the law. <laughs> and he answered, you shall love the Lord your heart, uh, the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, "You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live." Now, if if you think about it, here's a lawyer asking a question about the law. The lawyer may not know this, but he's asking the guy who wrote the law. And Jesus says, of all the 611 plus commands that are in the law, the big ones and the little ones, the major ones and the minor ones, all of them boil down to really one, maybe two things. Loving God is central to all of it. The Jews called this the Shema, which, which means in Hebrew, to hear. 
it comes from Deuteronomy 6.5. If you're a, a bonus Bible student, you want to turn over there. If you're just an average Bible student, stay in Luke. That's fine. Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Now, no doubt the lawyer knew this command. I'm fairly sure he knew all 600 commands. Probably had spent a lot of time studying, writing, debating, uh, talking about, perhaps even teaching on the, the laws. And he said, of all of these, what's it boiled down to? And Jesus says, well, you know. It's, it's the fundamental. It's the foundation of all of it. Good old Deuteronomy 6. It's not only foundational to all other commands, it surpasses all other commands. Because if you do all of the other commandments and you forget that one, you've missed it entirely. The point of it is for us to be all in with God. To be totally, completely His, devoted and trusting of Him in every regard. Trusting to the point of obedience. And then, then the lawyer, as all good lawyers do, wants a follow-up question. You can almost hear this exchange. I mean, it maybe takes place in a matter of just a couple of minutes. Now, now the lawyer's kind of looking, you know, Jesus basically said, yeah, that's it, you got it. <laughs> and, and you can almost sense a little bit of hubris. As Jesus turns around and perhaps with the crowd watching, perhaps the air full of tension, and who is my neighbor. Now, in your mind's eye, just imagine a sly little smile coming across the corners of his lips because he was asking a question which was hotly debated. I mean, if they had had Facebook back in the day, this would have been sort of like, you know, the issue, right? Everyone pretty much agreed on loving God. They weren't going to deny that. but, But when it came to loving their neighbor... There were, there were a few caveats. There were, there were a tiny few quid quo pros there that had to be worked out. A few little boundaries that need to be set. A few, a few little clauses that would give them an out as to exactly what was meant by neighbor. In other words, they were all in for loving God, not quite so all in for loving Neighbors. Now, certain neighbors, certainly, the right kind of neighbors, absolutely. But there was a certain kind of neighbor that they obviously, clearly, the, the scripture did not mean. Those people, the wicked, the sinners, the Gentiles, the Samaritans, all of these were enemies of God, and they were not to be loved, obviously. In fact, They would use scripture to justify this, as you no doubt know, being a Sunday night crowd. If you're not careful with scripture, you can twist it into just about anything you want it to say. Right there about the middle of your Bible, in Psalm 139, there is a a psalm that says exactly what they needed them uh, it to say. Psalm 139, which you know the first part well, 
O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You know my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, before, behold, you, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful me for me. It is high, too high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even then your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. It's a beautiful, powerful psalm. But we sort of stop right there because then it's kind of all about us. But, but I want you to fast forward to sort of the end of this psalm. Verse 17 The psalmist continues, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. See, this would be the lawyer would be saying, all right, amen. That's what I want to hear. That's exactly how I feel about God. If I could count them, why? They are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, verse 19, here comes the, here comes the good part. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? And this lawyer says, yes, yes. You see, you see, we should love God, absolutely. But there are those who do not love God. And so they are surely outside the definition of neighbors. So people like you and I, we would be outside the box being, uh, my assumption is, largely Gentiles, uh, being people who were sort of between uh, Galilee and Judea in this middle zone known as Samaria that was so hated for the people that dwelled within it that people would go out of their way to not go through it. And so as he asked the question, and who is my neighbor. You understand he's passive-aggressively trying to trip Jesus up because he's drawing Jesus into this debate that they had going in the day that surely there were levels of people that were considered to be neighbor, but there were other people who were sort of below the line, sort of below the line that were not worthy of our love, didn't need our love, and if we had the opportunity to help them and show them love, we had no obligation whatsoever to do so. And so Jesus... Being Jesus, the master teacher, responds to this lawyer's passive-aggressive question in the way that Jesus always responded when he was trying to teach. And that was, he told a story. One of the best-known stories that we know. And so, Jesus answered as he did with the story. So, tonight, let's study the story a little more in depth as we consider three lessons that we might learn for ourselves. Now we are in verse 30. As Jesus now turns around and faces the lawyer and understands exactly what he's trying to do, and probably with a great deal of frustration over the limits of what this man seems to understand in his head but fails to understand in his heart, takes a deep breath, almost a sigh. 
And he says, a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by. On the other side. It wasn't by accident that Jesus chose to illustrate in that point story two people who knew the law well, but refused to accept the idea that God's love might extend farther than their preconceived notions. The priest and Levite no doubt knew the law. They lived the law. It was day and night. They were the experts of experts on the law. And yet in the opportunity to not just know the law, but to put it into action, to practice the love for another that God had shown to God's people, they passed by on the other side. Then Jesus does a little rabbi jujitsu, and he throws in a curveball. Verse 30. But a Samaritan journeyed. As he journeyed, uh, uh, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeep and saying, Take care of him. Whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you and come back. Which... Of these three, Jesus now leaving story mode, looking him dead in the eye and returning the same smile, says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus answered passive-aggressive questions with a few passive-aggressive questions of his own, and he gave it right back to him. Oh, yeah? Who of these was a neighbor? Well, let's talk about it. Let's think about what it means to be a neighbor. Love for your neighbor means pausing instead of passing by. This was a long, steep, perilous journey. It dropped some like 3,400 feet in elevation in that time. This central group right here to whom I'm speaking, the front half of you, the, the young Vibrant, full of life. Go back now to Golden, Colorado. Go up the mountain, not on the bus, but on the, what is it, the big hike. Now, the big hike was steep. There were no robbers. Probably kind of perilous when you take a bunch of teenagers up the side of a mountain. But it was a steep up and down incline. Imagine now how you feel when you finally get to the zenith of the big hike and you get to see the cool pictures that make all the mothers just faint in agony over the idea that their children go up on these huge rocks way up high. How do you feel when you get to the base of those rocks? I mean, you're just sort of exhausted. I mean, your heart's pumping good. You've had a pretty good workout because you've gone from here to here. This was the same kind of journey that, uh, that when we read, as a man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, we're talking about a long, steep journey that was known for people who laid by in wait for those travelers, weary and exhausted as they were, to 
take hold of their treasure, to rob them, and to take whatever they had. That, that was just their practice. There's a man is goes on this perilous journey, and he falls into peril. He's stripped, beaten, robbed, left for dead. There are four travelers who come by. The first is the Jewish traveler, the man that pictured here. That's not the exact man, just for you know accuracy's sake. There's the second man, the priest. Okay, this would be a common sight, especially among this road. Jerusalem and Jericho, you see, were havens for priests. That's where they did their work, and they traveled back and forth. And First Chronicles 24, I think it is, says that, that they tr- tr- served twice a year for a week. And so this was full of priests and Levites traveling along this way. It was not uncommon to see a priest or a Levite traveling this way. What they would not perhaps have expected to see was this man who had fallen into the danger that they all knew was there. And then the fourth is this Samaritan, this unlikely neighbor to the north, this man who pretty much, you know, Jesus didn't say this in the story, but as near as we understand the relationship between Jews and Samaritans, when they saw the Samaritan traveler, the good priest and the good Levite, would go out of their way. Elijah, can you give me... Just a second here. Stand up. Okay. Yeah, you're standing up. Good. Now, you're going to, for just a moment, be a, uh, oh, how about you be a Samaritan, okay? And you stay right there. And we're going to pretend this is the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, I'll play the part of priest. You know I'm not a priest, but I'm playing the part, okay? And I'm in my garb, and I'm walking methodically, and I've got my phylacteries on, and and I see the Samaritan. If I'm worth my salt as a priest, my, my job is, number one, don't look at him. Number two, walk around him as, poss- as, as far as you possibly can without putting yourself in danger. The Samaritans are to be completely avoided. Not looking at them, not giving them acknowledgement, not saying hi, hello. I know this would never happen today. It doesn't happen today in churches, certainly not this church. But sometimes in some places, in some churches, there are people who don't really get along. And, and in the foyer, they sort of do this like, oh, there's that person. I'll stay over here and talk to Tim. Or, you know, I'm just going to avoid them, not look at them. You know, and that, that doesn't happen here, you understand. But back in that day, and at other churches, obviously, where this lesson applies more, there were certain types of people that they would rather avoid. Elijah, thank you for being a Samaritan. You're a good Samaritan. Both the priest and the Levite came upon, not the Samaritan, but the man who was beaten and left for dead. Now, these were two men who were experts in the law. They could have told you any number of commands. It told you you're supposed to do the right thing. You're supposed to treat the alien and the stranger and remember how God treated you and all of this. Their entire job, their entire purpose was to submit themselves fully and completely to knowing but mostly to doing what God said. Think about this as a priest and a Levite serving there at the temple. Your life is inundated with commands. You do things that are a result purely of the command and keeping the command and doing it just as God said. These men knew the law, and yet they both disobey the law. Neither of them stopped to help this man and instead... Not only ignoring the Samaritan, but ignoring the victim of this crime, 
They go out of their way to make sure this is not their problem. Because after all, I'm doing God's work, and I must be about the business of God. And sometimes we forget that God has much work for us to do, but it looks very different from what we expect. So we come to a gap, a moment of holy opportunity. Maybe you'd call it a holy interruption. And the gap here is between the stimulus and the response, between the knowing and the doing. Holy latency, if you will. This lag time between immediately seeing the problem, immediately understanding what must be done, and that moment when you yield to it. Last week, Sunday morning, I was talking about the latency speed on your iPhone. And I was kind of making fun of that, but you know, at a certain point in your phone, when that latency speed gets to be too long, you go, something's wrong with this. I hate, I just hit it, come on. Can I ask you, what is your latency speed with God? Does he ever get irritated that he... And nothing happens. He, you know, he gave you the word. You heard the sermon. You heard the class. You, 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 you watch, know your Bible, and yet there's this latency speed between when God gives you an opportunity before you actually yield and obey and take it. I gently say, the larger that latency is, the more trouble you're going to have. The goal is to get the gap as narrow as possible. I mean, Jesus was the ultimate. Father, yet not what I will, but what you will. The Father said, do, and Jesus did. He's our ultimate example, perfect. Our latency speed is going to be a little. But, but what do you do when you hit the gap? What happens when you have a holy interruption that sort of gets in your way, even if you think you're doing good for God? You come up with excuses. You come up with reasons. You justify in your own mind why possibly this man does not, or woman, need your help. This is not your problem. But then an unexpected character, he enters the story. And I say unexpected character because this man did not belong in a Jewish story. You see, every story has a hero and a guide. And to make a Samaritan the hero is just about one of the most offensive things you could do. But then a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, so Samaritans, you probably are familiar with that term, certainly a Sunday night crowd would be. Samaritans were a group of people. They had descended from they were descendants of the intermarriage that God's people had done with the Assyrians when the northern kingdom was taken captive. These were children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren of a foreign entity that did not know God, came and conquered God's people. And this was the result of that. And so there was this, this, this lingering despisement. There was this lingering hate. For just seeing those people and all they represented. In fact, the term Samaritan in of itself was a term of utter contempt. In the book of John, chapter 8, verse 40, 
8. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a... Wait for it. You kind of get their shifty eyes and the curled smile. Are we not right in saying you are a... Samaritan? It was like the worst name that you could call somebody. It was a slur. It was an utter contemptible phrase. And, and the Samaritans had done some bad things. I mean, they had their own temple, and they, they, they had some parts of their temple worship that included parts of paganism. And they were just downright factious with each other. In fact, John chapter 4, verse 8, the scripture says, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. But this Samaritan was different. He couldn't be painted with a broad brush. He was doing something that they should have been doing. They knew it. But he was the one who did it. Did he worship pagan idols in a weird sort of anti-temple ritual? I don't know. Did he have connections to the God of the Assyrians and, and keep idols in his house? The scripture doesn't say. What the scripture says is, in the moment that three men had an opportunity to act like a neighbor to a fellow human being, the Samaritan, the one they least expected, the one they most hated, the one they most denied, the one they absolutely despised, was the one who did. He was the one with the lowest latency speed. He was the one who saw the opportunity and then acted. You see, love means acting instead of intending. Love means pausing what your plans are and not passing by and doing what God needs you to do in that moment. The Samaritan, he did something. He did what was right, as opposed to those who knew what was right, but did not do what was right. I say often to my children, doing right exceeds being right. Everybody wants to be right. Most people think they are right. You may or may not be right. My question is not, are you right? My question is, are you doing what's right? God has a whole world of people who think they're right. He's not deeply concerned about that near as much as he is whether they are doing what's right. You see, you understand the difference in the knowing and the doing? A Sunday night crowd has a lot of knowing. They've heard a lot of knowledge. They've, they've, they've been to a couple sermons that day. They've heard a class that morning. They, they, these are the, the 20% core of the church, and they know it. That's not the issue here. Back then, if, if Jesus were telling a story, he might say, there, there, there were two people who, who attended Sunday night. I mean, that would tell you their level of seriousness about God. But would they, is the question, do what was right? Yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a challenging question then and now. 
He didn't just do what was right, he did it with compassion. He bandaged his wounds. He applied oil and wine to heal, to disinfect and to soothe. what, What that really means on a practical level is this man got his hands dirty. This was, a, this was an effort. This was a literal labor of love. Had it not been motivated by love, he would have just done what the priest and the Levite did, and he paid a cost. He put him on his beast, he took him to the inn, and he paid the bill. He not only paid the bill for that night, but for as long as need be. And there's cost to that. You understand, this, this man had skin in the game. He was... Maybe not in the right, but he was certainly doing what was right. Now, remember, this story is all designed to answer a question. Who's my neighbor? Who's my neighbor? The Samaritan, oddly enough, was the one people out of three that showed that the love of God was in him. Now, what we look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, and I know it's on the slide, and you can read it right there, and there's no sense in turning a good page in the Bible if you can just read the screen that the preacher is going to read. But if, if you would so indulge me and amuse me, please let me hear the pages turn. And Lee, please be scrolling on your Bible app the 1 John chapter 3, 17 and 18. And I don't ask you to do that because I don't think you haven't heard it. And I know Sunday Night Crowd knows it. But may we impress this verse upon our hearts. This is exactly what the Samaritan did. First John chapter 3, 17 and 18. Let me jump back to 16 because... Yeah, I know it's not on the slide, so that'll keep you guessing. By this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Oh, man, that's good. I mean, think about it. Just just imagine. I don't know, maybe you have imagined. What would happen? What would happen if a terribly disturbed person came into this church building, God forbid, uh, armed and, and ready to just annihilate as many people as possible. And, and as he charges in, loaded to the teeth, the, the, the very first person he sees is you. And you think, maybe First John 3.16, lay down my life. And maybe in that moment you would be filled with the courage of David and you tackle this man and keep him from hurting anyone else. Maybe even at the cost of your own life. Oh, man, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened in that moment. Perhaps take it outside of the church building. You're downtown. You're going to a business meeting. You, you see someone with their earphones in or something, not paying attention, paying attention to the phone, and they step into the street not seeing that there's a city bus right there. And you have a moment, a moment where you have to ask yourself, would you be willing to push, to jump, and to save that life knowing, knowing there's not enough time for you and him to get out? There's a decision, Right? And we think of these high examples of what would I do or what would happen or if I had the opportunity to do something kind of Jesus-like, not, not for our sin, but just being willing to lay down your life. Some of the most inspiring stories, uh, war stories, uh, hearing of people who, I've just finished a book called uh, Sacred Duty, and that in that uh, he's talking about the old guard and he tells these great stories about guys who win Purple Hearts. 
And one of those was, was a man who posthumously received it because the grenade came in and he had a moment and he had to decide. And he decided to jump on the grenade. And it saved everyone except him. And we ask, you know, rightly, would I do that in such a moment? You see, some of us may be called to martyrdom. That, that might happen. There's a, there's a plausibility. I can't say that it would never happen. But the more likely thing that's going to happen is what I call the laying down your life in a harder way. Because it means getting your hands dirty. To stop what you're doing, stop what your plans are, and actually get down into someone else's mess and help them. This comes in verse 17. Now, verse 16, lay down our lives for our brothers. Yes, maybe so. Verse 17. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The the word is telling us exactly the same thing that Jesus is trying to explain. Doing right always exceeds being right. Focus on doing right instead of being right. And then we could read verse 17 just as they read it. But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother, right, that's the key one, who is my brother, we might ask. I mean, surely it's people just like me. I mean, surely it's the people who are on the membership role at the Northside Church of Christ. No, 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 I can't be that because there's far too many people who aren't as faithful as I am, so it's probably even a higher line than that. Surely it is people. Brother must mean people who are here on Sunday night. That is obviously the way that it is. No, I mean, I mean, not, not. Not the people, of course, on the other side of the auditorium. I mean, those clearly people, they don't, they don't know where to sit. They don't know what they're doing. I mean, but, but, but brother is, is people like me who think like me, who I like, and who, who sit on my pew. We can get that way of thinking if we're not careful. We can begin to ask legalistic questions like, who is my brother, instead of just saying, am I doing right? Am I doing what's right? God gives me the opportunity, do I do what's right? A verse like that never hits us until we meet Paul. Oh, I know you're thinking, Paul of the Bible. No, actually, not that Paul, but this Paul. The story of Paul from Interstate 95. The picture on you, that you see is Paul. He's a Navy veteran. He's in his 70s. Today, while I was driving, not me, the person who writes the story, northbound on Interstate 95, about three miles from Georgia, the Georgia-South Carolina border, I saw Paul leaning against his vehicle, struggling to stand while he was waving at anyone and everyone for someone to stop and help. 
I immediately pulled over to the shoulder to see what was wrong, and what I discovered broke my heart. Paul wasn't feeling well. He had stopped to look for his medicine in his car. When he got out of the car to check the trunk, he shut the driver's side door, and being a newer car, it automatically locked. His phone, his contacts, his insurance information, his wheelchair, all were inside the vehicle, locked. And he was stranded on the highway with nothing but his cane. Paul doesn't stand for long periods of time and uses his cane for short distances. When I stopped, he looked exhausted and uncomfortable. It was hot. It was already 95 degrees just at 10 in the morning. What broke my heart is that Paul told me he had been standing on the side of the highway for almost two hours. On I-95, and not one person had stopped, had not even as much as slowed down. Paul wasn't asking for money or a ride. All he needed was someone's cell phone and a couple minutes of their time. I had a folding chair in my trunk, so I was able to get Paul to sit down while I called 911. The the dispatcher stated I needed to contact his insurance company, and there was nothing they could do. Luckily for Paul, he had some AAA, and I was able to Google their number and get his account pulled up. took another hour and a half before we were able to get Paul unlocked and in the car and safely back on the road. I know we live in a scary time, perilous, you might say, and everyone has to take precautions when it comes to strangers. But how sad it is that on a major thoroughfare, not one car stopped out of thousands that passed for an elderly man, a veteran, who is clearly in distress. Today, our world made made me a little sadder. And if I think about it too long, a little angrier. I hope we all will do better tomorrow. story, it's home. We've all been there. We've all had the opportunity. We've all reasoned our way as to why we didn't need to stop. But that's not the question. The question is, who is my neighbor? And Jesus tells a story that answers the question with not who is my neighbor, but who acts like a neighbor. Back to the story, final point. What we see in here is that love means having skin in the game. You see, this man could have stopped and helped for a moment, but boy, he went the extra mile, didn't he? He gave him two denarii, he he paid the the cost of an average in, uh, the average in cost for a night in an inn in that culture is about one thirty-second of a denarii. So he basically covers the room for this man for a couple of months. I don't know. Imagine what a hotel costs. Multiply that by 60. 
we, we start to get a sense of, of how in the game this man was. He was there for him, not just for the moment, but even beyond the moment. And then he says, you can cover any additional costs. That whatever this man needs, you get it, I'll pay the bill. He, 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 he left his debit card right there on the desk, in our words. You use it, whatever he needs. Good Samaritan was all in. He had every interest in not just seeing that man well for a moment. We have some good folks who can do that for a moment. But I mean, this man was all in with him all the way. It's kind of strange. Someone pointed out that we see three rules in this story. First is the iron rule. That is might makes right. Dog eat dog. I don't know if there are any teens in the youth group who are sort of a bully, possible, or if there are teens at your school that are bullies, you know, they're taller, they're bigger, more muscular, they, they have some advantages and, and they, sort of, they sort of pick on people, they sort of go to the lowest in the pecking order and they just pick on them, that's the iron rule, that's might makes right. I wish I could tell you it stopped right here. Uh, It doesn't. And it it was in this story. Might makes right was the robbers who came and said, give me what you have. I'm taking what you have. You see these, uh, I guess they call themselves Antifa or Antifa, I don't know what it is, but, but that's might makes right. We're going to do this. I label you a fascist, and that gives me a right to hurt you and to beat you, and to take your property. I watched him club an elderly gentleman with an iron uh, pipe of some sort. It's the iron rule. It's terrible. The second is the silver rule. Right? The priest and the Levi, they practice this. That is basically, don't do that which you hate. You see, they didn't do any harm to this man. They didn't hurt this man. They didn't add to his misery or suffering. They just didn't do any good. They were sort of neutral. That's the silver rule. Just don't do any harm. Just don't do that which you hate. But the Samaritan, he practices the one that we know. The golden rule. The one that Jesus calls us to. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Do. This is an active, involved approach. Do to others. Right? You can do bad, that's the iron rule. You can do neutral, that's the silver rule. Or you can do to others what you would have them do to you. The the, the point of the whole story is this. And this is our takeaway for the night. It's the third rule. It's the last four words of this entire story. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. Go and do likewise. See, we can justify ourselves like the lawyer. We can pass by like the priest and the Levite. We can follow the example of a very unlikely hero and do right, not worry as much about being right. 
Jesus' question was, who was a neighbor? Not who is a neighbor, not who is worthy to receive our love, but who was a neighbor. The obvious answer is the Samaritan. The priest and the Levite would have claimed to have loved God. They were, in all likelihood, some of them perhaps going to worship God and to help others worship God. But despite what they said and despite what they believed, it was only the Samaritan who did what God wanted. Only the Samaritan proved that he truly was a neighbor. If you're in First John, you are already where you need to be. If you're not in First John, you are woefully behind. Your preacher is woefully behind. First John chapter 4, 19 through 21. We love because people deserve it. No, not what it says. We love because people have a right to it. No, not what he says. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he is, cannot love, uh, has not seen, goodness, for he who does not love his brother, whom he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment that we have from him. Whoever loves God must love his brother. This week you're going to have many gap opportunities. You're going to have a moment where God gives you an opportunity and there's a gap. And I hope you'll narrow that gap and minimize the latency as much as possible. He's going to give you the opportunity, but it's up to you to take it and to act and to do it. Very likely those opportunities will be inconvenient. Perhaps those opportunities will be costly. You're going to have to choose how much you believe and love God. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you love God. That's not what matters. Everyone here would say it. It's not like I would even ask, can you even fathom, how many here love God? Everybody, hands go up, one person. Not me. No. God really doesn't care about what you say. He does care about whether you're doing what he said. The key to love and the Samaritan's example is action. Not what we say, but what we do. Jesus said, if you love him, you'll do what he said. My question for tonight is, uh, have you done what he said to do? If you haven't been doing that, maybe you need to repent. You've been so selfish, so self-centered, so myopic that you've only focused on you. You've been like the priest and the Levite, and you've passed by many opportunities. Or perhaps you need to obey Jesus and do what he said to do to step into eternity. In either case, if you love God, you're going to do what he said to do. Tonight, the opportunity is yours. I hope the latency will be very little. If you need to respond, meet me down front. Together, we stand and sing.